Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. And welcome to the final, your final dose of radiotherapy for 2020. What a year. What an insert your expletive here year. Would the Queen call it an anus horribilis? Is that how you pronounce it? For me, it's been a mixed bag. Lots of fascinating medicine and health stories on the back of some terrible tragedy. Systems under pressure. Politics pushed to their best and worst. And people responding in ways that at times made me smile, at times inspired awe, and at times made me fear for humanity. Mm. Anyway, to round off the year, we have a bit of a party show. We're going to reflect a little on the year and say goodbye to 2020. We've also got a special guest joining us, Dr. Danny Sullivan, a forensic psychiatrist and the executive director of clinical services at the Victorian Institute of Forensic Mental Health, a.k.a. Forensic Care. Danny joins us to talk about the journey to recovery for those managed under the Crimes Mental Impairment Act. It's going to be good. It's going to be good. And in the virtual studio for the last time this year, we have doctors malpractice, Dr. Nick, Dr. Spock, Dr. Trainer Wheels, Cyber Sue, Dr. Patient and the panel beater. I can see them all on Zoom. Can they hear me? Let me go around yeah. the Zoom, as I said. Firstly, panel beater, are you there, man? I'm definitely here. Good to see you. Good to see everybody on Zoom, too. Hey, I can't hear you through my earphones. Does that mean that you can't be heard over the radio? Is everything sounding all right? Um, yep, yep. I'm definitely going to air. I'm going to leave my uh, station. I'm going to come into your <laughs> studio and just double-check things. Well, I'm going to say hello and see if that, well, I can actually hear all of these people out there. Let me just go around the room. I can see uh, Dr Spock. Are you there, Dr Spock? I am, Dr Doolittle. How are you? I'm very good, man. Again, I can only hear you guys through the echo of the studio, so hopefully while we're saying g'day, that will get fixed. Um, Cyber Sue, g'day. Yo, good morning. I'm here. And, hey, can, Dr Mel, I can see you there. Can you say hello to the other people because while I fix my earphones so that I can actually hear you guys? I, I will say hello. So um, old fans or well, young fans of the show will remember a Dr Shivago. He has just served me an omelette with some mushrooms. We're away, oh, yes, on, yes. we're away on, a, on a fishing trip together. I said, I've got some very important business to take care of, radiotherapy, and he's serving me breakfast. We're, I'm down here in, um, in Jindavik, and it is just absolutely beautiful. And, um, hey, um, it looks like a few of you guys are somewhere else as well. Where hey, and I'm guys? back on air. I can now hear you guys too. I just heard about your oh. um, holiday trip, Dr. Mel. Nice to see you all. Yeah. Hey, uh, Dr. Patient, g'day. Good morning. How are you? Good. And Dr. Nick? Yes, I'm here. Good to, good to talk to you, too, Little. Wonderful to be on your show for a change. Oh, I know. It's a cast of thousands. Who else haven't I said hello to? Dr. Trainer Wheels. Morning. How are uh, you, Dr. Hey, I was watching the Zoom before. I couldn't hear you because I, I, I could only hear Marinara through the thing, but I could see your little um, bambino, bambino who didn't look quite such so little now. Nah, she's getting bigger and she's out of the house now, so we will be uninterrupted, luckily. <laughs> hey, it's great to have you all here. Now, as I said at the top of the show, we've got a bit of a, uh, you know, we've got everyone in today for a bit of a party show um, uh, except for the interview that we'll have at about quarter past 10. So we just want to go around, you know, as the hour goes on and talk to each of you about your reflections of the year. Now, I know our two intrepid um, the, our two intrepid hosts there, Mel and Nick, have to get going, I think. So we're going to start with you guys. Dr Mel, reflections, 2020. What do you reckon, Refle man? Reflections. Um, I do have to get going um, to catch some fish, but... I wanted to talk about, you know, this whole concept of being a COVID, COVID, COVID cliche. Yeah. And I was one, as most of my friends will attest to. So I did the four things. Do you know what the four things of being a COVID cliche are? No, but I'm going to count Have them out because you, know you know I love a list. Number one, sourdough. Yeah, but you love threes. Yeah, See, I do, I do one better than you. I go fours because you've always won three. Well, you were always 25% um, so, smarter all through school too. <laughs> You're just saying. So, number one, sourdough. Baked sourdough pretty much every weekend of uh, the, the shutdown. How many and loaves? I've got to thank. How many Sorry? loaves? How many loaves do you reckon you went through in the end? Oh, no. 
What's 105 divided by 7? Probably, was it 20? 15? 30? No, 30? 30? 15? I don't know, about 30 lives, I reckon. Oh, no, we have like two lives some weekend. So that's, and I've got to say thanks to Kentus Maximus, who gave me some brilliant advice on sourdough and how to keep your starter happy. Um, number one. Number two. Um, number two. By the way, can I, just, can I just pull you back one second? So loaves yeah. all through the year and fishes now. Is there something, is there some biblical theme to your end of year? Something very biblical. I've always felt a little bit messianic. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, you, you have been G- to me. Jim in the lounge room. I've got uh, weights and rollers and, and mats in the lounge room and, and also the garage. That and you're looking buff. It's, it's paid off. You're looking buff. You reckon? Um, three, did a podcast with an old friend from school. Um, and that was that, you know, who hasn't done a podcast during, during, uh, during the pandemic. Um, and four, wrote a novel. Oh, None wow. of these things were terribly successful, I've got to say. <laughs> the sourdough, yeah, it was okay. The gym in the lounge room, yeah, I'm The podcast, we've taken a sabbatical. And the novel, yeah, if publishers lower their standard, it might get published. But I just oh. want to tell you a couple, just a reflection on 2020. Yeah, go Seriously. for it, man. Zoom. When I started Zoom, because I do loads of teaching, I hated Zoom. I really did. And I've now grown to love Zoom. I'm also a student on Zoom as well. And I've heard this from a lot of people. Initially, it was, ah, oh, I miss the student interaction, and I really, really do. And, you know, I miss being in the room, and, it's, and it is virtual. And, our, you know, the definition of virtual is something that is not quite as good as. It's virtually as good as. So I kind of understood all of that, and I really didn't like it at the start, but now I'm a, I'm a total convert, and I love all the things it can offer. I, but I think what's going to happen going out to the future is we're going to combine Zoom or virtual meetings with uh, classroom-type teaching, and it's going to be a real blended model. And I know the students really, really like it. Um, and certainly me as being a student, I love Zoom because it's just so convenient. Um, you don't have to travel. Um, I've got all the notes in front of me. So I can really see virtual teaching uh, becoming much more acceptable now that we've all been forced to use it. Yeah, true. There's another thing about Zoom as well is that it's a great democratiser. Like, if you think about this, most meetings that I that we go to where there is a hierarchy, people sit in that hierarchy. Often it will be the, the boss at the head of the table and then as you're coming down the table, it's sort of the lower levels and then finally the lowest levels are down the other end. And I see this all the time. You know, there's been a couple of sociological studies looking at this. It just happens. We sort of self-aggregate into, that, into those seats and we kind of sit into the same seats we've always sat in. But with Zoom, people always arrive at different places. Like you're not quite sure is the boss you know, off to the left are the students off to the right? Is the you know the administrator off to the top? And so it just totally tosses that around. Can so I, I just reckon... can I throw a spanner in the work of your yeah, democratisation? Go. I have to wind you up because yeah, sure. we've got a lot to get through. Can I tell you something though that okay. I don't think you've realised? This is your twenty fifth yeah. goodbye end of year radiotherapy show. You started in March nineteen ninety six, and I know you're not good at maths because you think one hundred and ten divided by seven is thirty, but this is actually the 25th time you've said goodbye for the year. And next year in March will be your 25th year since you started this glorious show that we are now speaking on. You're getting a ra- virtual wow. round of applause from us all. You... So uh, congrats, man. It's a bit of a – it's something, well, really, something to reflect on next year, isn't it? March next year, 25 years. March 1996. Well, congrats you to you too. Well, I've only been congrats 15 years. Too, I only man. came you, in the new building. Really? Yeah. Oh, it feels like you've been with us forever. In fact, hey. I thought you started the show. <laughs> well, that's what people tell me. People say, aren't you on, aren't you on that guy's show, Do little show? Hardly, hardly, yeah. hardly. You are the inspiration it's and true. you still are the DNA. Yeah, sure. Hey, man, thanks for um, coming all the way from your um, loads and fishing trip. We're going to flick across to Dr. Nick. Thanks. Thanks. Everyone's waving to you on the Zoom. Dr. Nick. Yeah, waving like crazy at Mel. Um, well done, Mel. 25 years. Incredible. Now, you've had an amazing year from a uh, COVID perspective because you've been slack bang in the middle in so many different respects. Tell us, tell us how it all began for you. Like, you know, I know where you were. Tell everyone where you were when COVID hit. Yeah, I was over in the UK looking after my elderly mother, who was very smart at the age of 93. She'd done her time and she was clever enough to wrap things up and die while I was with her, which is what she desperately wanted to do. Um, So well done, Mum, because you got that all sorted prior to COVID. And I then had to bring my flight forward. Uh, I I got home to Australia with 24 hours to spare before it all got locked down. 
Um, so I got back to Australia, was thrown straight into quarantine and telehealth, um, this whole new world, which no one had ever done before. And um, trying to work out how to be a practice principal when I wasn't even allowed in the building for two weeks um, was quite incredible. And the stresses that um, people in primary care were under, I mean, everyone in the health system, I don't think we were special, but of course, that's what I did. And it was extraordinary what people were facing. And it was from the, the really big, the broad, I mean, we all knew that healthcare workers were dropping dead over in Europe, Italy particularly. So there was a very real threat of this disease and what it would mean. There was a very personal thing people felt that if I brought this disease into the practice and was responsible for infecting patients or other members of staff having to close down the practice, people were terrified of that. Uh, and there were all these ridiculous practicalities we needed to get. We needed to get screens put up. Where did you find someone who could put up screens? Because they were so busy putting up screens everywhere else. Um, and right, right, right down to the very banal and almost ridiculous, it seems, when we said to the reception staff, you have to wear masks, and then they'd bring a cup of tea in, and we'd say, you cannot have a cup of tea at the reception desk. And literally, there was almost a mutiny at that point. Um, this really apparently banal thing was almost the straw in the camel's back that they couldn't sit there and have a cup of tea at the reception desk. So it just was right across the board. Incredible. Hey, Dr. Nick, I know in hospitals we were in incredibly supported with lots of information, which struck me that when you're trying to get that same level of information across to thousands of GP practices, it must have been so hard. How were you supported? Yeah, so um, the DHHS website was on 24-hour rotation for our practice managers. Um, we actually were fairly poorly supported. Um, we used to get the, all these e-bulletins, of course, um, but it was really down to our practice managers and our primary health network was pretty good at keeping us up to date. For instance, <laughs> the, the ridiculous thing about PPE, here we are, you know, frontline healthcare workers, and we didn't have any PPE. Our nurses were amazing running around getting gowns made and sourcing bits and pieces from all sorts of places. Um, but we really weren't very well supported for some of those practicalities, I have to say. And just the challenges of putting on and taking off PPE. Now, you know, I mean, we're all used to in surgery, we put on our gear incredibly carefully so that we protect the patients from ourselves. Of course, people PPE is the opposite. You can put it on in a relatively haphazard manner as long as it's all in, in the right spot, but you've got to take it off so carefully, not touching anything and washing your hands four or five times between every step. You know, all that training and stuff must have been really hard early on. And again, all those practicalities, they devolved to our nursing staff, who I have to say were magnificent. Shout out to our nurses because they're the ones who, you know, as you would well know, do little doctors are bloody hopeless at this stuff. It's the nurses who make us do it properly. Oh, damn um, right. Damn but right. most primary care places aren't set up for this. They don't have a dedicated room where you can have people who are potentially infected and then clean it afterwards. So trying to get all that sort of stuff set up really was incredibly hard. I have to tell you, telehealth, which, of course, really became our backbone. Um, can you explain something to me? Maybe to, maybe this is a panel beta question. We can, we can zoom video content around the world in a picosecond, and yet over 100 years after we invented the telephone, we still cannot get decent voice quality on a telephone. Why is that? Banamina might be there. <laughs> but, I mean, I've got so used to listening to radio where, you know, there's challenges. Let's put it this way. <laughs> hey, but what about positives? Did positives come out of the year for you? Yeah, so, to, so the two things which I'll take into 2021 as a good outcome of COVID and, and that telehealth thing is certainly one of them because um, this has transformed how we do primary care and the fact that someone no longer needs to drive 20 minutes, sit in a waiting room full of snotty kids just to get their blood pressure medication updated is just fantastic. So we definitely will be keeping telehealth for the long haul. It, um, it obviously doesn't substitute for face-to-face, -face, but as an addition to our face-to-face -face work, particularly patients who we know well, I've found it amazing how you can connect with someone immediately on the phone when you know their voice. I can tell literally in the first sentence whether they're feeling okay or not, because I know these people. So telehealth is one. And the one that goes with that is electronic prescribing, e-prescribing, um, which was not going to be coming in for maybe a good 10 years. And now we can just click a button, send a prescription to people's phones, and we love it. And boy, do patients love it. So that one's staying as well. Hey, it's so good to hear from you. Thanks so much for jumping in for the last show of the year to say goodbye to 2020. Um, look forward to catching up with you back on Radiotherapy in 2021. 
Thanks, Doolittle, and thanks to all our listeners through the year. What a fantastic bunch you've been ringing in, subscribing, uh, and staying faithful for Triple R. So we look forward to having you all back for 2021. Thanks, Doolittle. Talk to you soon. Yay. Hey, gang, I'll, uh, we're going to go to some announcements, and then we're going to come back with Dr. Danny Sullivan, the Executive Director of Forensic Care, who I uh, announced at the top of the hour. So uh, hang on, hang in there, everyone. We will be back with you soon. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Hey, uh, as I said at the top of the show, we are now joined by Dr. Danny Sullivan, who is a forensic psychiatrist and the executive director of clinical services at Forensic Care, the Victorian Institute of Forensic Mental Health. And he's going to join us to talk, you know, what happens when someone goes into a forensic facility? What happens afterwards? What's the journey like? Can you hear me, Danny? Good morning. Oh, beautiful. Good to see you, man. And you. Hey, uh, doing this interview this morning, uh, myself and Cameron, we're going to try and get, rather than the whole um, group of us jumping in, are you in there, Cam? I'm, yep. I forgot to call you Dr. Patient. Dr. Patient. Right. <laughs> hey, let me start the ball rolling. Uh, Danny, tell us what is Forensic Care? What's, what's it all about? What's, what is the, the organisation? Well, it's, Forensic Care is a public mental health service. It's funded by Health and Justice. And what we do is we provide assessment and treatment for people who have offended or who are at risk of offending. And that can be in the community. We provide all of the mental health services in prison. And we have a 136-bed secure hospital, the Thomas Emling Hospital. Danny, um, can you describe the population you care for? Like, who, who are your patients? Well, Cam, they're, uh, they're pretty ordinary people, basically. Ordinary people develop mental illnesses. The majority have schizophrenia. Um, interestingly, most of our population has had some form of traumatic um, background, adverse childhood experiences, so we have a high prevalence of personality disorder and of substance misuse. Um, a number of people have really just committed one offence. They've had no troubles in their life. They're not offenders through their life. But that one offence is sufficient to get them into hospital for a sustained period of time under the Crimes, Mental Impairment and Unfitness to be Tried Act. And then the other population is people who are transferred from prison to the Thomas Embling Hospital for treatment because that's the only place that people in prison can be transferred which has the right security. But it's a hospital. So that might be like anyone, if you're in prison and you get depression, for example, and you need inpatient care, you'd go to Thomas Embley. Yes, that's exactly right. So tell us, you know, um, I think it's like super hard for the rest of us to imagine, although we've seen a whole lot of TV shows about what it's like in, you know, forensic hospitals. So what's it really like? What happens when someone arrives? Well, you're quite right. Um, although if you put the word forensic in front of anything, it makes it sound much more exciting. And we certainly deal with often the pointy end of uh, business. But actually, much of it is very banal. Once you're in hospital for many years, it's a community of people who have to live together. The staff and the consumers of our services all live together and get along and they go to university or take college, they do jobs, they go on leave, they re-establish links with their family. So essentially, you'll be assessed in either the community or in prison. Um, you'll be supported in prison. But if you require compulsory treatment, you'll be transferred to Thomas Embling Hospital. Or if you're one of the people who have committed a serious offence and the courts send you to Thomas Emling Hospital for an indefinite period and only the courts or the forensic leave panel can determine when you leave. When you're in Thomas Emling Hospital, you'll be treated by, just as you are in any other mental health service, nurses and psychiatrists do the, the majority of the work. But we also have a very comprehensive uh, multidisciplinary team. So heaps of occupational therapists, heaps of psychologists, and that's because we're dealing with people who are often treatment resistant, so they take longer to respond to treatment. And also, unlike other uh, mental health services, we also deal with offending issues. So we're both a standard service, but we're also special in the sense that we have to deal with the issues that got people there in the first place. Can I just... I've told this anecdote before, but the very first time I went to a locked ward, so not a forensic ward, a locked ward, it was back at La Rundle in the day, you know, there were two doors to get in, you had to close one door and it had to lock before you opened the second and you went in and it was scary. And the first time I went there as a young um, doctor, I was scared stiff and for the first five hours didn't leave the nurse's station, just made excuses and pretended to read notes because I was scared. What's it like for the patients arriving? Are they scared? What happens when they arrive? Uh, well, look, some patients certainly are scared. It's, um, it's got a reputation, obviously. You're in a, you're in a secure hospital. You don't know the other people there. You might feel vulnerable. But uh, I must say that there's, there's much of an effort to make it as normal as possible. So some parts of the 
hospital are very secure and the wards are fairly austere, you know, so there's no access to things which could be, you know, weapons or which could hurt people. But at the other end of the hospital in the rehabilitation units, it's pretty much like a home environment. People have their stereo system, their shoe collection, um, you know, they, they live their lives there until they return to the community. And we know that it takes many years to rehabilitate some people before they're safe to return to the community. And during that time, you know, there's benefits in sustained treatment, in building relationships with staff, in taking graded leave and returning very gradually to the community with staff support initially and then with less and less support. So although we're quite risk averse, um, what you will find is that much of it is surprisingly normal. It's a community of people who just live behind a perimeter fence, behind a high wall. Amy, I'm, I'm just going to pick up on, on what Steve said with that, that fear of the first, first time he went in there. I mean, the stigma in mental health is rife. And so it must be, it must be just jacked up on steroids for your patients. How, how do you tackle stigma? I think that's a great point. And, and our patients tell us very clearly that they feel the dual stigma of not just someone with a mental illness, but someone who has been in trouble with the law as well. In the past, the media did not help. Um, they told lots of horror stories and they used language which, you know, in retrospect was just wrong. And, of course, there's no excitement in a media story such as a um, person with severe mental illness who offended in the past leaves hospital, goes to work, comes back on time and nothing happens. That's not a story for the media. Um, but, in fact, that's, that's what happens day in, day out. We have lots of success stories. We hope to return people to employment and the Productivity Commission re released a report this year that shows what we already knew, that there's huge amounts of underemployment in people with severe mental illness. For our population, we often have to build up a lot of just living skills again, skills that people need to return to the community, and also pro-social attitudes so that they can live a, a life free of both mental health problems but also of, uh, of offending risk. So we have a, a strong focus on recovery, personal recovery, recovery from symptoms, recovery from a lifestyle which, which had people in the wrong direction. And, and Danny, I know data is hard to come by in our services because we're so busy doing the job that there's very little time and money left over for research. But do you have long-term outcome data? What happens to people when they leave? Well, we have great data. Um, we've done some research which looked at the, the 20 years of people under the legislation who came to the hospital by order of the courts for sustained treatments. What we know is that we've had more than 200 patients discharged back to the community they go back on a form of conditional discharge and they're supervised intensively and then gradually less and less intensively and then they return to an area mental health service and finally they come off the order. Out of those 220 or so patients, no one has committed a serious offence. Um, there's a small amount of people who have re-offended but they've been minor offences and very few people return to prison. So those statistics are much better than for the prison population and they show that for a population with severe mental health problems, sustained treatment and support doesn't just lead to functional recovery from mental health problems, but also reduces the risk of offending. And that's sustained data over a long period of time. Yeah. Has, has um, our, our Royal Commission into Mental Health, have they made any suggestions to improve the, the forensic services in Victoria? Yeah, that's a, that's a very good point too. The Royal Commission uh, includes a number of commissioners who have good understanding of the forensic mental health system. Um, it's been said by many commentators for, for years and years that the forensic system is underfunded, does not have enough beds. That's been said by Stephen Duckett. It's been said by the Minister previously for Mental Health. Um, we are optimistic that, uh, that the Royal Commission will recognise the needs of, uh, of the forensic mental health system as a particularly vulnerable group. And certainly numbers of us have made representations, submissions and attended roundtables. So uh, we look forward with optimism. Yeah, it's great. I mean, hey, there's just so oh, much sorry. difficulty with people's comparison of punitive measures as opposed to restorative measures. It's just, it's a, it's a long process. Well, it's, it's an interesting point. Uh, people can often be defined by their behaviour, but actually we recognise that uh, there's very complicated stories that underlie that. One of the things that's always really impressive about our staff is their ability to see the good in people, to see the positive um, and to work really constructively with people. So, you know, I'm very proud of our staff. They have a strong respect for human rights and they're really motivated by the work that they do and enthusiastic and passionate about it. Danny, as a patient, thank you. Hey, and Danny, thank you so much for joining us on Radiotherapy this morning. It's um, so good to hear um, the positive angle of the work you do. I mean, we see it in the system, but I don't think the public quite appreciate it until they, you know, hear it coming out of the... Uh, 
voices of people who are part of this system. So um, thanks very much for joining us for our last show for 2020. Well, have a great uh, silly season and thank you very much again for the opportunity. Great to see you. Cheers, Danny. So that was Danny Sullivan, the uh, Executive Director of Clinical Services at at the Victorian Institute of Forensic Mental Health. Hey, we're going to take a short break with a few station announcements and then we're going to come back with some Hmm, chit-chat, banter, find out what the team reckons of 2020 and what they're doing for summer. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. So we're going to talk to a few of the team to figure out what their perspectives were for the year. Hey, uh, who have I still got? Still got the gang. Why don't we start with you, Jess? I mean, God, I've got to get my names right. Last show, Dr. Trainer Wheels. Dr. Trainer Wheels, who graduated this year, as you probably all know, has been a medical student on the show for years, giving us a medical student perspective. How are you, Dr. Trainer Wheels? Pretty good. I'm recovering from a cold, so I'm sorry if I'm still a bit croaky. It's not COVID. How do you know? <laughs> have you been tested? <laughs> I don't want to put you on the test and get you in trouble like, you know, Gladys up in New South Wales. Hey, uh, from your perspective, how did your group, you know, how did your, how did the medical students adapt? How, what happened? Yeah, well, I mean, like Dr. Mal was saying, we moved to a lot of virtual learning, but I did I did bristle a little bit of, at some of his comments because I, I must say I, I didn't find it as inclusive and um, utopian as he put it because having a young kid at home makes Zoom meetings pretty challenging. Um, so I think depending on people's circumstances, yes, it can be hugely beneficial and convenient, but sometimes very inconvenient. Um, and that was very challenging for me. But in the scheme of things, as a final year student, I was lucky really um, because the first half of our year was research anyway. So we did that from home and then we were we had to finish all our placements. The second and third year students basically missed out on most of the year of their clinical placements. And I really feel for them because that's a lot of clinical time they've missed out on and it's going to be hard to catch up on it. Dr. Spock's got a question. Yeah. Yeah, Dr. Trainee-Wills, and what about the sort of patient interaction? Do you feel that you've missed out there at all? A little bit, yeah. It was so, in preparing for the show, Doolittle asked us what we were most worried about. And what I was most worried about as a medical student coming onto the ward, so we still had to complete all our clinical placements, I thought, I'm just another vector for COVID here. I don't need to be on the wards. Me coming in and out of the hospital every day, surely that's an unnecessary risk. Um, So I was definitely nervous about bringing COVID into the hospital unnecessarily while not really contributing that much. Um, So for that reason, I suppose my patient interaction was limited a little bit because the teams were a bit nervous about us having too much contact and we had to institute social distancing on the wards and all that sort of stuff. Um, But overall, I had a good year, really. I learned what I need to learn and I feel okay for next year. I feel prepared. I feel for the second and third years because I I wonder how they're going to catch up on all their lost time. The sort of rejigged structure of the course, so they're doing their research. I think they've sort of already completed their research or something, so they can just spend all year clinical next year. But it's going to be tough for them, I feel for them. Hopefully we can all be very kind and help them out. No, let's be mean. Hey, were you scared at all? I wasn't scared for myself. I was scared of giving it to my mum and I was scared of what would happen, what the practicalities would be if I had it having a young child and having to isolate and if she got it and not knowing what would happen to kids and all that sort of stuff. But I think, you know, most of the data is that young people do okay with it for the most part. So I wasn't scared for myself. But like I said, I was scared of bringing it into the hospital unnecessarily and I was scared for what sort of disaster we might be facing if things got really out of control and, you know, Touch wood, we've been really lucky here. I was driving yesterday and the traffic was really terrible and I sort of was getting annoyed by the traffic and then I thought, actually, we're so lucky, aren't we? Now there's traffic again. We can do stuff. We can go out and about. It's not like this dead zone everywhere. Um, Yeah, we're just so lucky. That that raises that interesting point. It's been hard to get perspective this year and the reason I'm reminded of this, I read an article in the paper in the Age yesterday about someone in quarantine. I'm starting quarantine wellbeing sessions for the people in quarantine in Melbourne tomorrow and so I'm I'm reading lots of stuff about people who are in quarantine and someone wrote an article, just some of the difficulties and they're all very reasonable and I wanted to get the feel for what the community thought so I read all the comments under the article on the age and was just one person after another saying stop whinging we're in lockdown stop complaining about the food stop complaining about the lack of air it's sort of hard to get a perspective at this year 
something that I've sort of taken away from the year is everybody thinks they've had it really hard. And we all have, you know, that's reasonable, but I'm approaching every conversation with someone that I haven't seen with a few months with, it must have been really hard for you because of X, Y, Z, because everyone wants to feel validated. I think that the year was particularly hard for them. For me, it was particularly hard for me because I've got a toddler at home and we lost daycare for a while, you know, da, da, da. But for someone living in an apartment, it was particularly hard for them because they had no outdoor space. So, you know, there's everyone, everyone feels like they've had it particularly hard, I think, and we've all lost perspective, like you said. Hey, let's bring Panel Beater in because uh, Panel Beater's been busy doing all the technical stuff and you haven't had a chance to say much. Why don't uh, you st- um, tell us a bit uh, about your year, uh, Panel Beater? Oh, it's been quite a year, right? And um, I really love listening to um, Nick and, um, um, oh, whoops, Dr. Nick <laughs> and Dr. Mel and, uh, and then just hearing uh, Jess. Similar sorts of things, really worried for others, really worried for mum um, on, on that front. Um, I've got a sister who's got a couple of, who's a teacher and um, a primary school teacher and has a couple of young kids as well. And of course, they weren't able to see each other. And that was, um, that was pretty tough going. Worried a lot for the students I was, I was um, teaching. They had enormous, enormous troubles um, managing through the, again, hearing Dr. Mel, <laughs> bit utopian, didn't quite sound familiar and also with uh, Professor Kumar a couple of weeks ago or a month ago um, sounded uh, very different <laughs> to the experience I had uh, in universities. But for somebody who's a policy wonk, it was a rich, rich year um, in policy terms. Got uh, royal commissions everywhere, <laughs> um, you know, three really in particular. We've got the Royal Commission into Violence, Abuse, Neglect, Exploitation of People with Disabilities. We had the Aged Care Royal Commission and we've got the Victorian Mental Health um, Commission, the Productivity Commission report came down um, last week. So from a policy point of view and things radiotherapy related, it was just non-stop, needless to say COVID itself. Um, Brought that in, um, and you know, and and teaching in the policy area, it was um, very convenient to be teaching policy when it was such a policy-rich environment. Um, obviously, curriculum pedagogy draws heavily on case studies, and when you're living a case study like COVID nineteen um, with students, it's uh, it's pretty pretty awesome. Yeah. Panel beta, was it funny to you know you've been a, a- policy nerd for I don't know how long probably decades was it hard to suddenly have everyone having an opinion about things and not as much education as you no quite the contrary I I think people are incredibly well informed like on I mean with some notable exceptions definitely don't look at Twitter <laughs> um, with some notable but people are really well informed and Dr. Vyom made a, a one of my favorite points of the year related to COVID he was a big proponent and advocate for making sure that um you know, that the government didn't get on the back foot and feel um, defensive about decisions making if they were doing that on the basis that they didn't want to scare people. You know, he was saying, no, people are good. People can handle this. If you give clear information and engage them in the decisions that are being made around, you know, things like quarantine, masks, social distancing, washing hands, whatever it might be, that people won't get scared. They'll actually engage with that information and quite you know, the general public is really ready to engage on a, on a relatively sophisticated level. So that was great. Awesome. That's great. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I was going to say, yeah, that is a really good point. The main thing we found doing wellbeing seminars during the year that we began with our focus around lots of stuff like relaxation, stress management stuff. The number one thing, though, was information, good quality, clear information, which was really hard, though, I think. What do you, I think, panel beta, it's hard to give good, clear information. Yeah, it is when there are so many um, rather influential and powerful people trying to derail it. Thank you, Harold Sun, you know, and Tim Smith and so on. Um, I can see Jess his hand up there. Oh, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> Training wheels. I've gone back to all right. Look, don't worry. It's all out the window today. <laughs> um, I also think there was information overload too, right? Like, I don't know about others, but I felt there's been times where I'm just like doom scrolling the Guardian all day. Like, how many is it going to be today? How many <laughs> cases have we got today? There was information overload too. So it was hard to strike a balance of good quality, you know, um, reliable information and then too much kind of doom and gloom information. What, what, sor- what source did you trust the most during this period, um, training wheels? I use the um, I use my phone, obviously, and I was using the Guardian and ABC apps. Yeah, mostly. yeah, yeah. I got a, I got a comment on that as well. I think our collective tolerance for online rubbish has just 
disappeared at the start of the press briefings, especially the ABC ones. You would have people responding in 25, 30-person comments when someone was spouting off a hoax or a government conspiracy or, or not being real. But two months in, they would just shut them down instantly, yeah. tell them to go to Murdoch Media or Parler, and that was it. <laughs> you know, it was, it was, uh, it was a collective, uh, collective connectivity that I, I didn't expect would happen. Hey, while we've got you um, chatting, um, Dr. Patient, just to remind everyone out there, Dr. Patient is our consumer representative, sits on, I think, the board of SANE. Um, you'll have seen him on lots of um, different shows representing consumer views. Why don't you give us a rundown of what it's been like for you and from the consumer's perspective this year? Uh, like everyone else, it's, yeah, it's definitely, been, it's definitely been subjectively hard. I think the one thing that we really wanted from this year is as patients everyone to just understand that little bit more of how people's mental health can be affected so rapidly and if your mental health hasn't been affected this year i would be very interested to hear why and how so i think uh, just talking to talking to you know friends, co-workers, pe- people that, that, that I work in the, in the area with, it's, it's like, well, now people understand that it doesn't take much to, to really shift a person's perspective. And when people have to go through it day in, day out with, this, with, with these kind of mental health issues, um, I think we're just, we're just incredibly, it's, it's, it's weird to use the word lucky, but that, we, that while it was very hard, we got through it, relatively quickly i mean compared to what other nations are going through at the moment i think uh, that is going to affect some serious long-term mental health issues we we have mm. you know had our struggles but i think we've got through it really quite well that's that's a collective observation that, that i've seen throughout this this past year dr pa- dr patient um i wonder if you uh, got uh your head around any of the stuff coming out of the uh, Victorian Agency for Health Information just recently. They were talking about a 70% increase uh, in the number of serious self-harm and suicidal ideation presentations in emergency departments this year. Just And, that, and that's youth. Uh, that's a 70% in youth, which is, which is shocking. And then the, um, the Productivity Commission talked about the cost of mental health being unsupported is about, count this, $200 billion a year. And I think that underlines your point. You know, if, if, if there's that kind of impact around the place, um, giving it the attention that you're doing is going to make a huge difference. That's, uh, that's uh, yeah, one foot in front of the other. You know, it's, it's, going, to be, it's going to be a long recovery. But I, I think, you know, as a, to start nationally, I think Australia is able to, to really get through it now. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm speaking in generalisations because I just haven't seen enough data to, to warrant us saying, right, we're going to recover from this by March next year. It, there's just been so much, such a massive percentage of increase for everyone's everyone's need to to just be well and mentally it is absolutely slanderous. So yeah, it it sounds it sounds negative, but I am I am hopeful. But you know, it is one foot in front of the other now. Dr. Patient, it's um, Cyber Sue here. Just going back to your previous comment about um, everyone experiencing some kind of mental health. And then you mentioned before about the stigma of mental health. What do you think are going to be the take-homes about uh, any changes in the stigmatisation of mental health because we've all had an experience of it? I think, uh, I think the, the stigma surrounding that, if everyone has now understood mental health and complex mental health even 15% more after this year, that is that is going to that is going to disseminate to huge understanding and huge acceptance. Um, like I said, you know, we got through it reasonably well because of the uh, because of the timeline. But uh, everyone now understands that uh, that you know mental health is is really an issue and it's something that if we all went back to normal, if we were all vaccinated one minute from now and we all went back to it February next year, we're still dealing with complex mental health issues and we're we're still trying to get back into society. <laughs> 
It's quite amazing, isn't it? Hey, Susan, what? I'm Susan, Cyber Sue. I'm <laughs> We're all not the only today. one. <laughs> it's catching. It's because everyone's got their names on yeah, Zoom. Yeah, that's what it is. Yeah. Um, Cyber Sue, why don't you um, give us a bit of a, an insight into what it was like for you? I mean, essentially, you, we have you on as our IT person because for people who don't remember, Cyber Sue's a nurse. For many years, she set up the a lot of the IT around telehealth at the Children's and at Peter Mac, and she's moved into different areas since then. What, what's your perspective? Yeah, so, I mean, of course, like um, Dr. Nick talked about before, I'm so excited to see the massive uptake of technology and the fact that that's here to stay. I think that's a great win. I guess in some of my other kind of, I guess, roles as a nurse, um, I've I've grappled a wee bit with, um, you know, let's say, for example, seeing the impact of COVID on people at the end of their lives or people who are seriously ill and families. And I've grappled with seeing the real consequences of not being able to have visitors and that type of thing um, versus when then I go home and I see on the news or I see at the beach people protesting or gathering or breaching rules. And I appreciate everyone's right to protest and that kind of thing, but I found it very hard to kind of align those two observations. Yeah. And what about personally, Cyber Sue? What what uh, do you think you'll take away from from this year? Yeah, well, I mean, I guess a little bit different to um, like just uh, Dr. Trainer Wheels was just saying how everybody <laughs> has kind of had the worst experience, and I guess I feel a bit guilty because for me. Um, I've enjoyed the roads being quiet. I've I don't have to deal with kids at home. So for me, there's been lots of positives out of this at a very personal level. Um, I have seen families come closer together in some ways, and I hope that that's something that goes into the, you know, the, the post-COVID phase. I've seen some people who've chosen at the end of their life, for example, to stay at home with family, and the family have been able to look after them a bit more because they haven't had those work commitments or other commitments or overseas trips or whatever. And um, maybe that's something that we can uh, uh, can take forward, I hope. Yeah. Jess. I remember when um, restrictions first eased, I went for a walk through Edinburgh Gardens and it was just packed with people having picnics. I think it was, you know, all in twos or something. It was when we were only allowed very small gatherings. But it was just, the weather was beautiful and it was just such a gorgeous sight to see people really being outside and seeming to really appreciate being with people Mm. in person outside in the nice weather amongst the trees. And I just thought, wow, I hope we can really keep that sort of sense of gratitude at those simple things that we took for granted before. Definitely, definitely train wheels. And I think also, um, you know, because we're not able to travel overseas, is that we can actually appreciate what we've got around us. And, for example, I was away in Bright um, in a three-times cancelled holiday to the, to regional Victoria and then finally got to enjoy being up there at a time of year I wouldn't normally go there. So we can enjoy much more of what's around us. Today I'm heading down to Sandringham. And, yeah, I think it's nice. I, it's been... Um... I've also just really enjoyed seeing people setting up picnic, just just even on like um, nature strips or wherever. People really um, took advantage of being outdoors within the context of what they were allowed to do, and were really in, ingenious in the in the sort of the way they sort of were able to make use of of the environment around them. So yeah, it was really heartwarming to see that sort of thing happening, wasn't it? Can I just say too? I mean, right before um, uh, Cyber Sue answers that one, can you actually? end your little bit on reflections because what I'm thinking here in my head that I'm not saying very clearly is that you spent five years working on telehealth I know because I saw it firsthand because we worked in similar places that you had to drag people often kicking and screaming to see the benefits of it it must yeah. have been quite satisfying just to see the fruits of your work and you know what you've advocated for so long just overnight bang I just clicked my fingers come to fruition and you know all the good work paying off Oh, it's amazing. I mean, it's not, and it's, I should just say, it's not the fruits of my work. I mean, 20 years before, uh, we were trying to drag people along. There was other people doing the same thing. So it's been, there's been this push for such a long time. But yeah, it's music. It's music to the heart to see people then wanting to use it. So rather than kind of trying to coax people in, they actually want to. And to see people like Dr. Nick saying, yeah, it's here to stay. And they finally see the benefits of to the patient. And this is, about what's great for the for the consumer and for the community. It's so much more convenient. It's the doctor centrifying this, which, um, yeah, I mean, you know, as I said in the last segment last month, is that 
telehealth as in the video consults the tip of the iceberg and now we can start to embrace technology with perhaps a bit more um, confidence enthusiasm and able to see the benefits of it so that's exciting Hey, Cyber Sue, I reckon that's that's fascinating, really, and it actually plays out in so many different ways. There's people like yourself who, for a long time, have been advocating for attention to, to certain innovations, to uh, rethinking the way we approach things, and COVID comes along, and like all good crises, crises um, they're, never, they're, they're too good to waste. They're too good an opportunity to waste. And so mm. in a crisis, it means advocates who have been looking for funding to do, say, tech-based mm. stuff um, and now are, are being heard in a way that they weren't just as recently. And so what I'm, I guess what part of what I'm saying is that there's been this all this skills development across various industries. Look at us here at, um, at RRR and all the broadcasting from home that's being done and, and the different ways people have been producing their shows just on, on a RRR level. But... Um, it also gives me a great deal of hope that we can now use the response to COVID in crisis from a policy point of view and say, hey, it was possible to mobilise all that policy, all that money, all that reconfiguration of workplaces, all that um, effort, um, um, and now we can see it's done, and now why can't we do it with climate change next year? <laughs> <laughs> That's excellent. And, you know, the, note, the one thing that came to mind is that when Dr Nick called it virtual, it's actually better sometimes it's better and like Dr Doolittle he did medical exams through video so this can be better than and maybe in climate as well it can be better than everything face to face so yeah bring it on. Hey you know it was um, Dr Spock did exams through interviews yesterday now Dr Spock for those who have forgotten is a paediatrician at one of Melbourne's or Australia's largest paediatric hospitals I I don't say it because of anonymity Royal Children's Hospital Um, Spocky (laughs) What are your, I mean, and you're also an infectious disease doctor and you also work in the front line in the emergency department at the children's a couple of shifts a week. And you do exams. What's it like? Look, it's been, a, it's been an amazing year, hasn't it? I mean, and we're all here for everyone. And I think uh, Dr. Trainer will said it best, you know, everyone's been affected, you know, whilst, uh, you know, and everyone has the story to tell about, about their experience. But certainly in every domain of my work, things have been changed. As you say, I examined on uh, Friday, and I was sitting at home in Melbourne. Um, my co-examiner was um, in Adelaide. The uh, the patient was in Canberra, and the candidate was in Sydney. It was extraordinary, and it all went off amazingly well. So, and that's the paediatrics exam. So, you know, it's the one thing they couldn't do, of course, was examine the child, and that's the the, the loss. And we're hearing, you know, before about Dr. Trainer Wheel's experience. I mean, I think that. Uh, that's something we're going to really have to work on is clinical skills over the over the next year because people have not been able to do everything they've been able to do in the past. But one of the things that I've really um, I, I wanted to uh, to mention that was an interesting thing for me that at the beginning I was really worried about my interactions with kids wearing a mask and the fact that they wouldn't really um, you know that I wouldn't be able to convey. The, what I feel, I'm a pretty tactile person and I, you know, I'm pretty up and about, I'll get down on the ground and play with my patients. And it was difficult to sort of, being in PPE, in emergency as well, I mean, it was difficult to do all that sort of stuff. But what amazed me was babies who you might think, um, you know, that they look at the whole, the facial cues and they look at your smile and so on. Babies could tell I was smiling just from my eyes and from my voice, I think. I'd, I'd be interacting with a baby, I'd pick up a baby and they would smile just because I was, my eyes, I guess my eyes were probably smiling and I know you do a little practice that in the mirror. But, but it, does, um, it does help that you have the largest eyebrows in the Southern Hemisphere. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, they're probably laughing at my eyebrows. That's probably what it is. You're right. But it is amazing how the, the, there's clearly something about um, the way we interact with one another that, that children pick up on. One of my, sorry, it's training wheels here interjecting. One of my concerns early on, which I'd forgotten about until just now, was my daughter's just turned two. And I thought she's, you know, at the time she was one and a half. And I thought, how is all this going to affect her development? You know, how is seeing everyone in a mask and not seeing 
her grandparents and cousins and not going to daycare and all this sort of stuff. How's that going to affect her development? What can we do to kind of minimize the effects of it? And I remember the first time we were at the park with her and we had masks on, my partner and I had our masks on and we were doing whizzy dizzies with her or something. And she was still laughing and having a really good time, but it felt like this awful sort of dystopian nightmare that we had masks on, but she thought it was normal. And it sort of felt horrendous. But anyway, like you said, Spock, she's fine. It doesn't seem to have affected her at all, really. We we forget that, you know, I mean, when uh, the older members of this panel uh, were growing up, I mean, we didn't go to childcare and we didn't, we were with our parents and our siblings only and we, and I think we've turned out okay. So, you know, there are some fantastic things that kids are exposed to nowadays, but they actually get by, incredibly resilient, they get by okay. Yeah. I mean, there have been some unintended consequences, I guess. And one of the big things was school and the loss of school and the, the, I think for some kids, school is so important. It's a safe place for them. And, and we did unfortunately see a bit more domestic violence and you know, problems in homes and, and kids who were, were stuck at home, not getting to school, suffered. But, but on the whole, I mean, I think kids have, I mean, there, there are clearly, there's a long tail as, as um, Dr. Patient was saying before about the, the recovery. And, and that's going to be the same for kids developmental and, and mental health problems. But um, I do think that uh, kids do well, have done pretty well out of all of this, thankfully. Yeah, we've got through it so well in so many ways. I'm a little bit scared that, you know, we've got this sense that because it's the end of the year that it's all over. And, of course, you know, there's a year of rolling out the vaccines and more challenges and, you know, potentially more waves. So, you know, we have to keep strong and reflect on all the great achievements. Talking of which, I reckon it's time for us all to say a bit of a thank you to uh, everyone. Let me list a few of the thank yous before I go over to the rest of you for your final messages. Um, obviously, we want to thank all of our guests for the year. Oh, God knows how many we've had, but it must be in the realms of 150-odd um, or maybe 100. Um, thank you so much for joining us in various ways. Of course, all the panellists who aren't here today, Sharma, Neonatal, G-Spot, Misdiagnosis, Prudence, Rainbow, EpiPen. I hope I haven't forgotten anyone. It's been fantastic. We've got such a great crew. There's around about whatever that makes us, around about 15 of us, uh, and we rotate through and have various rosters. And uh, so thank you to everyone who's helped us put together radiotherapy. Of course, our listeners, you know, <laughs> the number one group of people to thank you thank you so much and for your comments on facebook and on instagram it's just been a joy to be part of this and of course our subscribers you know the radiothon this year was a record-breaking one and made up so much ground for triple r who had you know as um panel beater was saying has done such an amazing job keeping this show place running and getting everything covid ready and all that sort of stuff and the subscribers and the response we got this year um really helped with some of the financial challenges that covid bought and of course, that uh, probably le- leaves me with thanking the Triple R for, well, it's our 25th goodbye for radiotherapy um, since 1996. And we'll have our 25th anniversary next year and Triple R couldn't support us more. They're just constantly here and helping and giving us suggestions and wise advice and, of course, running this whole infrastructure with all the volunteers and keeping the whole thing going and making it so COVID safe and just so well. I'm sure you'll want to say a th- few things to their panel beaters, so I'm just leaving a little space. Oh, great. Um, yeah, second all of that, the sponsors, the listeners especially, uh, sponsors uh, of the station and the listeners through tough times. And it is great to see sponsors coming back and supporting the station and in return hopefully we're supporting them. It also kind of indicates that people's lives are getting back together. The one thank you that I want to make sure that we um, get out there is to Max, our bloody hero of a podcast oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. editor. And we he, he's, we don't see him, so out of sight, out of mind kind of thing, but he he's done amazing. Uh, high quality work we're on an excellent routine all year and um, a big shout out Max you'll be hearing this in your ears as you do the editing and I hope you uh, take that and we see you next year Hey, and thanks, everyone, for jumping on the show this week from your Zooms all over the place um, this is our final goodbye for the year have a great summer, everyone Hi, this is Panel Beater thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.